0: We are speaking with Chris Devonshire Ellis. He is the founder of Dezen Shira and Associates, a foreign direct investment practice which also publishes the Silk Road Briefing. He speaks numerous languages and has lived all over the world. We will be talking about his vast experience and his book, China's New Economic Silk Road, The Great Eurasian Game, and The String of Pearls. I have guests on from different parts of the world with different life experiences to talk about the New Silk Road. In your book, which is available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback, you describe China's intentions as threefold to secure and develop energy supplies, to create and secure social environments and uh, markets, and to develop the infrastructure you say it will affect 80% of the planet. I'd like to try and get your unique insights into this Chinese behemoth. Is it a jolly giant, a lurking dragon, or a paper tiger? Where would you start in trying to explain uh, your view of the new Silk Road? <laughs> yeah, uh, I have to say that the the and Road Initiative
1: has been uh, one of the most um, uh, has uh, uh, created a lot of uh, partisan feeling in international media. There are, there seem to be two camps: people that are very much for it. And also people that see it as a as a threat. Um, so it's uh, it's very much a a point of view perspective. Uh, from my own um, uh, point of view, and um, having travelled extensively around the region, rather than just being an armchair commentator, uh, I, I see I, I do not see it as a as a threat. Uh, there are challenges, uh, but essentially I, I think that the Chinese want to um, uh, want want to uh, First of all, put in uh, uh, infrastructure and uh, and social intercourse into the uh, primarily the Eurasian region uh, for a number of factors. Uh, a lot of media has concentrated on on trade with the uh, with the overall impression being that China is just using this to export cheap goods to Europe and to southeast asia and 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 uh, elsewhere. Uh, and although there is some truth to that, that is uh, that is not the that is not the whole picture at at all. Um, China is also, when we're talking about the trade perspective, is also very very interested, and the Communist Party has a, uh, a vested interest in this, uh, in getting uh, materials, goods, supplies uh, for its own people. Uh, the, the Communist Party of China came to power in a revolution, uh, and as a one-party state, uh, they must keep the Chinese people happy. And when you have a population of 1.3 billion people, that's a tough thing to do. Over the years, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have seen an increase in Chinese tourists visiting other countries, being overseas. Uh, This is a phenomenon which has been uh, gathering steam now over the past decade, and it's going to continue. That experience of Chinese tourists and people traveling overseas uh, has also allowed them to develop a taste for foreign products, foreign foods, foreign clothes, foreign lifestyle attitudes, and they want to start to bring those back home. So the Belt and Road is also uh, an opportunity uh, for uh, businesses around the world to sell to Chinese consumers. Now, when we look at China domestically, uh, that, uh, that goes hand-in-hand hand with uh, what the, the, the party has been doing internally in China. There, there are currently about 1 billion Chinese nationals that are using e-commerce in China. Uh, the party wants to include that to everyone in China and to have uh, a standard of 48 hours delivery time. That's absolutely astonishing. Uh, and it means that the supply chains to provide the Chinese people, not just with energy supplies, but also with fashions, foods, uh, wines, whatever it may be, those are all being put in place to allow the Communist Party of China to satisfy China's own consumer demand. Um, so that's the other part of the trade story. And I think that it's important to note that uh, of course, while China has a, a wide demographic and there are very rich Chinese and there are very poor Chinese, the middle class of China alone is somewhere in the region of about half a billion people, uh, which is a huge market and much larger than that of the United States. Today. So from a trade perspective, the Belt and Road, first of all, uh, yes, it does permit Chinese companies to expand overseas. A lot of them are getting involved with infrastructure projects and development uh, big ticket items building ports bridges roads rail and so on and so forth and yes there are chinese companies that are taking advantage of that and are using new infrastructure to uh, better sell products to europe and 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 elsewhere Um, but the other side of the coin is uh, getting access for the first time the uh, the holy grail for international businesses getting access to china's domestic market and That is uh, taking uh, taking the shape of uh, e-commerce. So the Belt and Road, from a trade perspective, uh, companies wanting to sell to China need to look at how to do that through e-commerce platforms. The whole beauty of it being that actually you don't need to be in China to do that. You can you can sort that out without having to even travel to the country. So from a trade perspective, uh, that's where I believe things are uh, are going. Um, now, if I can continue just to expand upon the other. Points. Um, there is another uh, issue uh, related uh, to military, uh, and I think that a lot of people uh, are wary of China's um, uh, growth in this uh, in this regard. Uh, but China has um, borders with 14 different countries, including some um, some very difficult countries to deal with um, that, are, that are going through a hard. And, and uh, onerous time right now, and these uh, vary from North Korea, of course, all the way through to Pakistan, uh, a little bit of Afghanistan touches China, uh, and there are other other areas which are perhaps poorer, don't have so much uh, infrastructure. Uh, parts of the uh, the Muslim insurgencies in parts of Central Asia also affect uh, large parts of China's landmass, and in particular the uh, the western province of Xinjiang. Um, and I think that China feels that um, rather than get engaged with, uh, with military campaigns uh, in countries across from its borders, something, for example, the United States has been doing uh, and beyond, I don't think that the Chinese public are ready or even willing to see the sight of Chinese soldiers coming home in body bags. So the Chinese government, to my mind, does not really want to get involved in military actions across their borders. Uh, I think that their approach to dealing with unrest in other countries, which are on their borders, uh, is to try and help develop the infrastructure uh, and trade, and to uh, to, to basically uh, it's a longer term process, but basically try to settle down warring tribes through making them wealthy through trade, so that they can start to become rich and have the things that they want, or relatively well off um, by having the things that they want and start to put down their weapons uh, because uh, the onus is on protecting their family and doing well and getting their children into education and all these sorts of things, rather than having prolonged squabbles with your neighbors. And I think that a a softer part uh, and an often misunderstood part of China's Belt and Road is this desire to actually uh, increase peace, regional peace, particularly in Central Asia, uh, through um, replacing Conflict with trade, and I think that's a very smart and a very shrewd thing to do. Um, so uh, I know that the area of Xinjiang uh, uh, is sometimes problematic, uh, but uh, there are and there are uh, uh, ethnic differences with the Uyghurs and the Han Chinese. Uh, however, that particular region has been restive for uh, centuries, and I think that in future. Um, decades, when historians look back at the, the Chinese um, management of Xinjiang, I think that you can see that already over the last 50 years, there's been, uh, there's been more peace there uh, than there ever was in the past. One just has to look back to the 1930s and accounts of uh, people such as Joseph Rock, who was an American uh, naturalist and explorer who traveled that region extensively uh, and was apprehended several times by warlords, and bandits, Uh, and that was as recently as uh, 80 years ago. What China has done since then is to essentially uh, install a uh, management and administrative system uh, that keeps the peace, Um, and it is a restive reason, and the the reasons for that are complicated, but somebody has to administer it, and I think that um, China has been unfairly malign in some of the Western press in particular. Uh, over its treatment of people in Xinjiang. Um, There are some people there that wish to take trouble, uh, and I think that the Chinese uh, quite rightly wish to prevent them from succeeding. Uh, So again, it comes back to that thing that uh, uh, peace through trade, and uh, yes, there is a military uh, aspect to that. Um, My feeling is that that's positive rather than a negative thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to add to that. You quote in your book a conversation you had with a uh, Muslim trader who said, "The Chinese make peace come from trade." And as a Muslim man, I desire peace in this world. Um, and to move over a little bit to Central Asia, you, in your book you you lay out the basics: the Eurasian Economic Union, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the the CIS. Um, And you mentioned how the U.S. applied and was denied for observer status in the SCO. Um, And some people say the purpose of the SCO may be to counterbalance NATO and U.S. interventions in the lands near Russia and China. And most recently, something of interest was Kazakh President Nursultan Nazarbayev's meeting with President Trump uh, in Washington to improve relations. And not long after that meeting, I read that Kazakhstan gave Washington access to some ports on the Caspian Sea through which to transport supplies en route to Afghanistan. It seems Washington has long kept Central Asia on the back burner and that they are now starting to get a little more involved in the region. Um, How do you see the U.S.'s role uh, and U.S.'s response to to the Belt and Road, but also in, in Central Asia?
1: Well, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, uh, frankly, I wasn't aware that the the Americans put in ports in onto the Caspian, um, but uh, uh, getting supplies into uh, places such as uh, uh, as Afghanistan, and again, that's trade as traders, you is mean, uh, is important. Um, uh, the that, that whole region needs a, needs a great deal of support, and again, people need to be weaned off the fact that they've had arguments with their tribal neighbours for the last uh, 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 100 years and uh, perhaps it's better to start to get uh, um, uh, uh, some wealth created through trade I think the Americans realise this uh, as do the Russians and uh, and as I think do the Chinese um, but I'm not so sure that the, the Americans are actually upgrading and improving or, or want to continue uh, their adventures in Central Asia uh, in fact the um, Uh, The Lapis Lazuli Corridor, uh, which uh, extends from uh, Afghanistan all the way through to um, Georgia in the Caucasus. Uh, China's been very, very quiet about this, Uh, but um, it is part of the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, along with the Central Asian five states. The Lapis Lazuli Corridor, uh, which is a trade uh, uh, corridor, is actually built on the routes that the U.S. military had put into place to uh, to to get supplies in uh, as regards the conflict they were involved with with Afghanistan. Um, so those uh, military supply routes uh, that the US have now abandoned have in fact been uh, been augmented uh, by the Central Asian uh, states involved and China in developing them as trade routes. So again, this is a positive thing. Uh, the military aspect is starting to smooth out the way now. Uh, and trade is starting to be uh, encouraged and made possible. Uh, So again, I think this points to the fact that um, China's overall uh, ambitions uh, tend to be uh, benign, uh, and that they don't want to get involved in uh, in conflict. The Americans are pretty hardcore. They they will go in there, and they're prepared to send soldiers back in body bags. I don't think the Chinese are like that. Um, I don't think the public is prepared. I don't think the Chinese government is prepared. But they are the great merchants of the world, and they do want to trade, and they are opening up those routes. So again, I feel that uh, the American involvement and what's been going on in Central Asia and the Chinese involvement are approaching it from different angles.
0: And can you br- briefly comment uh, you wrote it's in your book about Siberia. there are uh, the importance what, what's what's um, what can we say about Siberia? There are natural resources there transport routes that may become important in the future such as the polar silk road um can you comment on siberia
1: yeah well um i i think one of the first things we have to get used to is that siberia is part of asia um i mean it's a massive land um, uh, mass in its own right uh but global warming um is uh, is uh Getting getting access to uh, to those minerals and uh, things that are in the ground, which is everything from diamonds. Uh, Russia is now the world's largest producer of diamond diamonds, uh, mainly being extracted from the Yakutia area of Siberia, to oil and gas, and uh, Russia again is supplying uh, 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 LNG specifically to uh, to Ch- uh, to China. Um, moving forward. Uh, going, getting, getting goods to and from uh, uh, Asia, uh, Northeast Asia and uh, Europe. The quickest way to do that is through the Northern Sea Passage, which um, goes right the way across the top of Russia through the Arctic Ocean. Uh, and with thinning uh, ice there, um, it's now possible to get those shipments uh, across. It's already being done. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Russia, for example. Uh, uh, from one of its ports uh, on the Arctic coast, supplied LNG gas to India for the first time ever. That was a China Silk Road fund uh, funded uh, uh, operation. Um, so that sort of trade is starting to happen as a result of the Arctic Ocean opening up. The Chinese have been very interested in uh, in developing, uh, and they're the ones with the money uh, at the moment, uh, Arctic ports in conjunction with Russia so I think that you'll see that um, there are a great deal of opportunities uh, for businesses involved in port uh, redevelopment and the technologies required. The area is still inhospitable. Uh, but in um, developing the ports that run all the way along from northeastern uh, Asia, northeastern uh, S- uh, Siberia, the Russian Far East, right the way across the top to places such as Murmansk and Arkhangelsk, which are closer to Europe. From there, they can drop down either via rail, the, uh, the Finnish Railway system, the Arctic Rail, and uh, Rail Baltica uh, are really interesting projects if they come to fruition um, or continue to, to sail down uh, past the uh, Swedish and Norwegian coasts and drop down into the EU from there. That's the quickest way to get products to, uh, to and from China and the EU is actually the, uh, the Northern Sea Passage. That's probably not going to be commercially operational for the next couple of decades. But that doesn't mean that the infrastructure is uh, is not being put into place to uh, to to take advantage of that, because that's exactly what what's happening. And uh, I think that one of the benefits of the Chinese uh, and to some extent the Russians have through their political systems is they can put in place long- term development projects taking two or three decades to accomplish and get them executed. Whereas I think that one of the failures of um, democracy, uh, in the West, that uh, we, we've kind of taken our eye off, uh, off longer-term projects and concentrated on shorter-term product projects as a result of uh, uh, democratic elections having to take place every four, four years. And uh, that's the weakness of dem- democracy there. It's very strong, probably the best system, I must hasten to add, but it does have weaknesses. And one of those is uh, its tendency to, uh, to uh, focus on short-term uh, political and diplomatic measures rather than the longer-term positions that the Russians and Chinese are, t- are putting into place. Um, so again, those big infrastructure projects, including the Arctic ones, I think the Russians and the Chinese are going to be in that for the long haul, and it will change global shipping.
0: Now, the Russians and the Chinese have been buying gold uh, like crazy. Um, the Chinese have opened their Shanghai Gold Exchange and just last week opened their Oil Futures Exchange, effectively establishing their Petro Yuan. By f- default, this is a direct challenge to the Petro dollar, um, but many say that it will take a, a long time to really uh, get on its feet. Can you comment on why Russia, China, and other countries, including India, are buying so much gold? And what is your take on the Petro Yuan and its capabilities?
1: Okay, well, let's deal with the Petro Yuan to begin with. Um, the um, China and Russia, and amongst many other nations, are uh, are increasingly wary of uh, the uh, global reliance on the U.S. dollar. Um, the uh, the Americans essentially control global trade, uh, and that means uh, when 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 transactions are uh, uh, and enabled in the US dollars, uh, which is the global norm, and the banking system supports this. Uh, then uh, the Americans get to know about those transactions. Uh, that that's not necessarily a good thing if you're dealing with sovereign wealth and your supply chains, this that, and the other, because it advertises uh, both where your strengths and weaknesses uh, are, and that's very valuable information for uh, for American businesses and politicians to have. Um, it's also a little unfair um so it's uh, it's uh, the 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 US dollar dominance in trade um effectively is a, is a spyglass that uh, enables the US to look at uh, global transactions everywhere uh, understandably there are some countries which are, which want to resist that hence the uh, hence the uh, uh, the starting of the of the movement away from having transactions done in US dollars uh, Russia and China, both huge, uh, well, both superpowers, have started to put in place mechanisms. that they're already in place to place um, uh, oil settlements and energy settlements rather than using US dollars, but using uh, yuan, the so-called Petro yuan, and the uh, and the ruble exclusively. So those transactions no longer uh, can be looked at by the US government. That's not the only one, by the way. Um, last week, it's interesting to note that um, Russia. Uh, uh, has um, uh, has agreed to uh, accept uh, Venezuelan uh, petros, which is the Venezuelan cryptocurrency, uh, in return for provision of uh, automotive plants to uh, to Venezuela. Now, Venezuela is also one of the world's largest uh, oil-producing countries. It has a close relationship with uh, with Russia, uh, and the acceptance of cryptocurrencies, which is still a very new, um, unproven, and relatively un legislated uh, technology is significant, I think, that uh, uh, both Venezuela and Russia, who uh, have um, difficult relations with the United States, have decided to use new technologies as a test uh, to see if they can uh, promote their own uh, energy and commodities trade through using uh, uh, the Petro, the Venezuelan cryptocurrency. So I think that this is very much something which is going to happen in the future, a move away from from us dollar denominated uh, transactions into alternative transactions, and these will also uh, introduce new technologies, as I mentioned um, uh, cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies and so on and so forth. Um, as regards the um, the gold uh, the, um, the Indians, both the Indians and to a lesser degree the chinese um, have a, um, have a tendency uh, within their families to uh, to hoard gold. Uh, if you've ever been to an Indian wedding, you'll suddenly see these uh, these matriarchs and their daughters all decked out in the family gold and silver and jewelries. Um The Indians are, uh, have long been one of the world's largest consumers of gold for uh, for centuries. Uh, that's recently. They've recently been overtaken by the Chinese, who are now one of the world's largest uh, purchasers of gold. Um, it's a beautiful metal, of course. The majority of it ends up in the jewelry industry. And I think that it's a sign of increasing wealth within Southeast Southeast Asia and Asia generally uh, that uh, these countries are amongst the world's biggest buyers of gold. That's largely to satisfy uh, a booming jewellery market. However, there is an interesting uh, uh, twist to this. In fact, both uh, China and Russia uh, have been uh, and india have been growing their gold reserves the reserves which are held by their state banks uh, they've been buying up gold all over the place um, particularly russia and there's a growing call that although the americans still have by quite some way the world's largest gold reserves there is a growing call that um, currencies should be better uh, are better off being backed by by real assets rather than by debt Um, which is the case of the U.S. dollar. Um, So I think that we're starting to see the beginnings of uh, of an intellectual debate about how best to support your currency. The dollar is supported by debt, um, uh, whereas uh, uh, countries that have plenty of assets in the ground, uh, Russia is very much oil-rich, as I mentioned, is Venezuela. Uh, China, perhaps less so, but it is the, uh, the world's largest importer, of, uh, of energy, uh, these countries are, are, are looking to um, to acquire reserves uh, of real, real assets. And I think this uh, this debate as to what is the real asset is that debt, or is it actual mineral wealth which has been uh, dug out of the ground? There's an interesting study uh, which dates back actually a couple of hundred years. Uh, a book called The Wealth of Nations, which examines uh, how. Uh, countries, uh, where, which countries have the most wealth. And it's done on many basis, the uh, size of the country, the size of its population, uh, what it's got in the, in the ground, uh, its infrastructure, and these sorts of issues. Uh, and it's interesting to note that if we were to uh, use that standard, 200-year-old standard, to look at which countries are the most wealthy in the world today, then by far and away, the wealthiest country in the world would be Russia. Um, that would be followed by Canada and then uh, Australia. Uh, I think Iran is uh, is then fourth. Uh, so that uh, this whole uh, desire to accumulate uh, or, or extract mineral wealth, I think is going to become increasingly, uh, albeit slowly, a challenge to the concept of uh, the U.S. dollar being supported by debt. I have to say that um, in, I think it will be 10 years before uh, Russia or China uh, have enough gold reserves to challenge or to match those of the United States. Um, I don't think anyone really quite knows exactly what, uh, what will happen uh, if, if Russia were to suddenly announce, we now have more gold reserves than the U.S. Um, what would be the impact of the U- on the U.S. dollar? Now, the U.S. dollar is not a gold-backed currency, but I think in terms of uh, emotions, uh, I think that there may be a little bit of a, uh, an increasing amount of concern about how the U.S. dollar is valued and what's actually supporting it. Because if Russia and China and India are able to say, look, we've got real minerals, we've got real assets here supporting our uh, our currencies, what has the U.S. got? I think that's, that's a really interesting question. Uh, there isn't an answer to it at the moment. I think we're going to have to wait and see what's going to happen. But this uh, question... Uh, for debt versus uh, uh, assets in terms of backing in currency, I think is going to become one which is increasingly asked over the next decade.
0: And my final question, if you could just briefly tell us, give us your thoughts. Uh, In history, it seems 14 times out of 16 uh, empires don't go down without a fight. Um, Do you see, you mentioned 10 years time, you know, in the next couple of years, five years, 10 years, 15, whatever the real possibility of conflict between uh, U.S. and uh, or Russia, China, just as during World War I, when the Germans were building up their navy to challenge the British navy and the Germans were building the Berlin-Baghdad railway, this was a direct threat to British Empire. Do you see the possibility of something like this in the future?
1: Well, I sincerely hope not. Um I don't I don't have a crystal ball, um, so I, I can't really answer that question. Uh one would hope that today's politicians um uh, are uh, uh, perhaps more sensible, uh, but I have to say that um uh, I, I think that the United States has, has made a lot of its own problems. Um it uh, uh, I think it's seriously messed up in, in parts of its foreign policy, uh, particularly as regards North Korea. I think that whole issue of North Korea Actually, acquiring nuclear weapons uh, was, was could have been completely avoided had the U.S. had a much more uh, pragmatic uh, 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 approach to the North Korean problem. Um, it was it was a great shame that uh, uh, George W. Bush undid essentially the work of his predecessors and made them an axis of evil um uh it, the the result was, uh, was was North Korea going uh, going nuclear and i think the united states has to take much of the blame for that um in terms of um wars and conflicts uh, well, we have mechanisms such as the world trade organization the united nations and uh, and various other organizations uh, in place which hopefully will prevent uh, things getting uh, get, getting too nasty um, I think that talk of uh, a new Cold War between Russia and the West, um, particularly in terms of the, uh, of the poisoning of the scripples in, uh, in Salisbury in the UK, uh, has been a bit overblown. Um, it's less sabre-rattling rather than people throwing their toys out of a pram. Um, and I think that uh, uh, both sides uh, in this particular uh, incident, uh, both Russia and, and uh, London, uh, have shown inconsistencies in in the way in which they've uh, released this incident in terms of stories to the uh, uh, to the media. Inconsistencies on both sides, um, and um, I, I I think that uh, that is not where we should uh, not where we should be. So I do detect that there's a more partisan approach. Uh, I don't think that Donald Trump is a, is a particularly um, it's a is a man who. Particularly likes to make a great deal, uh, a great lot of friendly gestures. He's a hard-nosed businessman. Um, uh, he's definitely going to see out his presidency. Questions which were being asked uh, a year ago: Would he last? I think the answer to that is definitely yes. Um, he's a hard-nosed businessman. Does that equate to being? Does that equate to being a hard-nosed militarian? Um, I don't think so. Um, so, although yes, there is, uh, there are signs of partisanship. The "Make America Great" uh, slogan, great slogan for an election. I'm not sure if that's uh, particularly uh, being used uh, properly in trade. Uh, I think the American pullout of the TPP uh, was was a big mistake. I don't think Trump and his team fully understood the implications of that agreement. Um, it was it was a real wasted uh, opportunity. Uh, but Trump or Trump will learn. Um, and um, I think that uh, while while he is a bit of a partisan mode, i'm the boss I'm in charge uh, and America is, is, is all uh, is not always uh, very helpful and he can be somewhat bellicose. Um, I think that we are entering um, into um, a period of less partisanship and perhaps more stability uh, and I think that it's interesting to note the Western reaction to shooting things. Uh, recent uh, 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 acceptance, if you like, uh, of him uh, potentially being in power as uh, leader of China indefinitely—that um, that, uh, that change to China's constitution to allow him to remain there for a while—that's um, not a, that's not very democratic, I have to say. But then China has never really been very democratic. Um, but it does give stability, and I think that what the world needs now is more stability. And I think that it's uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing when you have people such as Xi Jinping uh, in power for a longer period of time. I think it's all right with uh, Putin as well, although who knows exactly what's going on internally in Russia. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a good thing that we have uh, uh, leaders which are in power for a long time that get along, understand each other and can, uh, and, and can move ahead uh, accordingly. I think what's damaging is when we get a, 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 a quick turnover of leaders in different countries, particularly powerful countries. I think that's I think that's not so helpful and not very healthy, and I think this is where America is right now. Um, so um, in terms of a longer-term view, I sincerely hope there's not going to be any conflicts. Uh, there are trade spats. We're going through one now with the U.S. and China. But in terms of military conflicts, I think, that's, uh, I think that's rather unlikely, and I sincerely hope that uh, uh, my words prove to be prophetic.
0: Okay, we've run out of time, and it's a good place to stop. Uh, your books are on Amazon, and people can find your company's site at desshira.com and the newsletter at uh, silkroadbriefing.com, as well as there are other sites we'll link to. Um, and we thank you, Mr. Devonshire Ellis, for your valuable insights.
1: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much also.